0: Good morning, good morning. It's been a joy to study God's Word. I love Philippians. I think it's becoming my favorite book. I'm just, I always seem to be drawn there. But this was what it was on my heart. And so, how fun to come and be with so many people that I love and that I'm getting to know and learning to love. So, what a privilege. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. This week, we have looked at the life of Paul. Paul. And the desire is that we would be people who, like Paul, were transformed, that we start to look like the Apostle Paul, who took his cues from Christ, who was motivated by the gospel. And we've taken time to look at his his prayer life and his prayers for the saints. May we look like that prayer in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. We looked also at his priorities, and his priorities gave way to his perspective. If you want a perspective like Paul's, you need to have Paul's priorities, We looked at his confidence. Last night, we looked at his humility. He had the mind of Christ. He saw one who came from so high and went so low. And that's what transformed his life. Today, we look at his contentment. Let's look at Paul's contentment. You guys are on top of things. I love the song you ended with. It is well with my soul. And I'm sure so many of you know the story behind it. I hadn't really planned to talk about this until I heard it as I walked in. Go ahead and and look at the story behind that song, Horatio Spafford. He was a businessman, he was a, a man of God, and he and his wife were planning to take a trip over to Europe as a family, but business kept him behind, and on the voyage, as he sent his wife Anna and their four daughters ahead, tragedy struck on the sea. And the ship they were traveling on, it hit another vessel and it sank rapidly. Only Anna, his wife, survived. And she sent a haunting brief telegram to Horatio bearing these words. Saved alone. You don't know what that's like until you're a parent. I mean, I can't even fathom. And so on another trip, voyage over that same place where his daughters had drowned, he penned the words to that hymn it is well with my soul. How in the world could you authentically say, it is well with my soul? In other words, I am content. The world cannot do that. But we find out the secret today. Won't you like to see the secret to Paul's contentment? Wouldn't you love to have that tranquility? rather than that stirring, foaming sea rising up in your heart constantly. Wouldn't you love to know that contentment, that peace of mind, that inner tranquility that alone comes from knowing Christ as a treasure? So let's look at that today. Let me start with asking you a question. What do you need to be content? What do you need to be content? You know, there was a a newspaper article a number of years ago about a depressed TV star it quoted her as saying that there were days where she could only wake up and cry. That's what she said. She couldn't eat. She said, I fell into a dark hole of despondency and I felt like a detested member of the human race most days. And then the article closed with this comment. She's a very pretty woman with a doting husband, three adored stepchildren, two golden retrievers, seven horses, a large house with its own cinema, 50 acres, including a polo field. She's had an extremely successful career in TV and made a fortune. What's her problem? She should thank her lucky stars. And so let's simplify that mindset of that news article. Let's do it with a mathematical formula. Let's simplify that mindset. Apparently... Physical beauty, plus doting husband, plus three times adored stepchildren, plus two golden retrievers, plus seven horses, plus house, cinema, 50 acres, polo field, plus a successful career, plus money, equals contentment, according to the world. In other words, just look at her circumstances. They couldn't be any better. She has every material and emotional blessing that she needs, so she should just stop moaning and groaning and be content, be happy. What's her problem? And that means, according to this paper and our culture at large, that the secret to contentment is change your circumstances, or earn more money, or get the dream job, or get a different job, or get the guy, or get the girl, or get a different guy, or get a different girl. Get a new house. Make a move, then you'll be content. Get a new car, get some more stuff, move somewhere new, you know, get healthy, get respect, get more stuff. I'm just, this is the world. This is what their advice is to us. Surround yourself with people who love you and will affirm you. You know, many people really do believe that and sometimes even as believers, we lose perspective and we start to believe that. If I just get a bit more, then I'll be content. Or if I can change my circumstances, things will be better. The next purchase, pay raise, partner, I'll finally be there. So how much is enough? There was a poll that revealed that Americans who earned $25,000 believed that if they could get $50,000 a year, then they would fulfill their American dream. However, those who made $100,000 a year believed that if they could just make about $200,000 a year, then they could be content. In other words, content requires about twice as much as we already have, is what it boils down to. As Paul signs off here, you you get a a completely different perspective on life, don't you? As he signs off to the Philippians in chapter 4, he says something radical, something quite different. He has learned to be content no matter the circumstances. Contentment has nothing to do with what he has or whether circumstances are good or bad, how much he has or how little. He says, I have learned the secret to being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. I've learned the secret. So let's lean into the passage and discover the extremes of his situation, but also the secret to his contentment. Contentment, notice, this is pretty cool. Look at the end of verse 12. He says that contentment is something that he learned. He learned it. Even the Apostle Paul learned what it takes to be content in this stormy world. Begin by looking at verse 10. Paul's joy. Verse 10, we see Paul's joy. Why is he rejoicing? In verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly In this context, it can't simply be that he's rejoicing because the Philippians have met his material needs. He says so much in verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. And then if you look at verse 17, he says, not that I desire your gifts, but he is full of joy with the arrival of Epaphroditus and the gift of the Philippians' generosity. Why? Because for him, it's evidence that they are spiritually healthy. It's evidence of their contentment in Christ. It's evidence that they are apparently holding this world with a loose grip. They're not tethered to this world. They're willing to share out of their poverty. As Second Corinthians 8 tells us, it's apparent that Christ is their treasure. And that's why they're willing to share their earthly treasures with him. They are apparently rich towards God. And so he's thrilled. He rejoices. You know, sometimes the evidence of a new heart, of a heart that's been melted by grace, is generosity in a life. You've seen that? People who've been transformed by grace, they were stingy codgers, but now they're willing to share. Classic story would be the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man, right? Zacchaeus. If you look at Luke 19, you can look up on that story. But that's one of my favorite stories about how Jesus is walking through Jericho and he makes a beeline to the worst sinner in town. He was Zacchaeus was a wee little man. That's how we know him. He was vertically challenged, but he was also the chief tax collector. So he wasn't just a bad guy tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. No one would touch this guy with a 10-foot pole. He's the worst guy in town. You wouldn't let him in your house because your house would become unclean. And yet Jesus makes a point to go right to him And he looks up the tree, and he calls him by name. He knows his name, and he says, Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. Divine necessity. I must stay at your house today. And it says Zacchaeus came down and joyfully received the Lord. He'd been shown grace. No one else had shown this man grace. But Jesus said, I must stay at your house today. Inviting him into fellowship. What is the next response from Zacchaeus? He says to the Lord, Lord, half of my goods I'm going to give to the poor. And I'm going to restore to those I previously seen defrauded fourfold. Lord, I just want to give back. I want to stop taking now. What I want to give. See what grace can do? See what grace can do at our heart? See, grace is the engine for the Christian life, it's the fuel. Here's a man shown grace and now he is generous here in verse 10 Paul has this burst of joy when Epaphroditus his friend we learned about him last night he's the kind of man that Paul says you should honor men like this they put others interests before their own but Epaphroditus has made the sacrifice on behalf of the Philippines he's come and he has gone to this prison And shown love, a love offering, supplies to meet Paul's needs in prison. And he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Now Paul qualifies this. He he doesn't want to give any misunderstanding. He, He wants to assure them that he understands why there was a delay. He understands. He says, I am rejoicing that now at length you've revived your concern for me. But he wants them to know he understands. He knows they hadn't forgotten about him. It's just that they hadn't had opportunity until this point to come and meet his necessary needs at the moment. Paul knew that he was always on their mind, that they loved him, that they desired to be his partner in the gospel, but extenuating circumstances made for the lapse in provision. Perhaps it was changing venues for Paul. Maybe it was the distance, the lack of internet or email or cell phones or text messaging, Facebook, Instagram. Perhaps it was their own poverty that didn't allow them to come. But nevertheless, here's Epaphroditus. Here are the generous supplies, and it's evidence of God's control over their lives and their contentment in Christ. Imagine the relief he would have felt when he saw Epaphroditus' face, when he saw them. You know, in the Roman prison system, a prisoner was completely dependent on outside help. They might get very basic sustenance, but They were blessed when people from outside, friends, family, supporters would come and bring provisions. And that's what you see happening here. Now you move from his joy to his contentment. This is why he has joy. This is why he's content. Verses 11 through 12, Paul's contentment. Still aware that he could be misunderstood in what he's said so far. He doesn't want to be misunderstood for saying, listen, my joy comes because your gift has come. I now have joy and peace and contentment because all of a sudden I have brighter circumstances. He says so much in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation to be content. I'm overjoyed that you're here. I'm overjoyed by the gift, but it's not the gift that's giving me this contentment. I'm so thankful for your gift and the evidence of your spiritual health, but that's not the ground for my inner peace. My contentment is not dependent on provisions or circumstances. Over the passage of time, through epic situations and experiences, Paul has learned to be content, and he has faced unparalleled miseries and joys, like no one else before him. Consider the dynamics of his contentment, but also the dynamics of his circumstances. I mean, here's a man who is like a calm sea, a portion of the calm sea, and the rest of the sea is raging around him, and the wind's blowing, and yet he is tranquil. Look at the circumstances around him, verse 11 and 12. I've learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Do you see the rhythmic balance in phrases there? In verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and how to abound. Like Christ before him, who was made of no reputation, who became low, Paul knew contentment when humbled, when suffering, when persecuted. Saying that he knew how to be brought low and to abound means that he knows how to share in Christ's humiliation. That he knows how to share in the fellowship of his suffering. And he knows how to experience the power of his resurrection. He knows the glories of Christ's riches. This is the ground for his contentment. In this life, he had been repeatedly beaten. All you need to do is look at some of the passages with the lists of his circumstances. If you look at, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13, you see that he faced hunger. He was thirsty. There were times where he faced rags, homelessness, He was brutally treated, he said, cursed, persecuted, slandered. He'd been to the bottom. But this is also a guy who'd been to the top. He was almost ruined by that experience where he was caught up in the third heaven. What would that have been like, to have been in the third heaven, to have been in the heavenlies? To experience that, how would you ever come back and be satisfied in this world? So he's been to the top, and now he's at the bottom. Then he's up at the top, and then he's down at the bottom. I mean, thinking about the upside, he'd had times where he'd enjoyed plenty and abundance. Think about his time in Philippi. He'd shared the gospel with a woman who had means. Her name was Lydia. She was probably from Asia. And she sold purple clothing and dye. She was an industrious woman, a fashionista maybe, and she probably had means. And can you imagine, after she comes to the Lord, after the Lord opened her heart at the preaching of Paul's word, we're told that she brought Paul in for a feast, a real Mediterranean banquet. I'm sure that was a great day for him. His joy and his heart was soaring as he saw someone transformed by the gospel and he was enjoying a good meal and he was an honored guest. But you have to understand that he wasn't intoxicated by the ups of life. He was tranquil and at peace whether things were good or bad, even when things were good. It sounds kind of odd to say he had learned the secret of contentment even when he had much. Well, of course he was content when he had a lot of stuff and he had a full belly and things were going well. It seems kind of weird to say he'd learned to be content with much or with plenty. It's easy, right? How is it a problem? How is that a struggle to be content when you have a lot and you're blessed? But sometimes living in plenty is as miserable as living in want, Paul says, if you haven't learned the secret to contentment. We've often been told about celebrities or we watch their interviews. You know, they're the people who finally get to the top and then they realize it's actually a disappointment. This is not what I expected. My whole life I've been working to get much, to get there, to reach the dream, and now here I am, and I feel so empty. One writer said, we often think it's hardest to be content with little, but experience tells us that it can be just as hard or harder to be content when times are ideal, even when we have all that we thought we could ever want. It's just a real common story. I'll never forget watching the interview on 60 Minutes with Tom Brady, and they were asking him, what's it like to have everything? I mean, you, you have houses, you have, what is it, six or seven Super Bowl rings? Seven Super Bowl rings. He literally has a supermodel wife, beautiful children, all the luxury, comfort he could ever want, celebrity, and yet at the end of the interview, he said, you know, the funny thing is though, I still feel like there's something missing. It's that God shaped void, right? He got it all and realized he wasn't truly content. I love what Calvin says as he comments on this passage. He who knows how to use present abundance soberly and moderately, with thanksgiving, prepared to part with everything whenever it may please the Lord. Giving also a share to his brother according to his ability, and who is also not puffed up, that man has learned to excel and to abound. This is an excellent and rare virtue and much greater than the endurance of poverty. Being content with much is much greater at times than the endurance of poverty. It can be hard to be content with much. Because it leaves you wanting more. One of the richest men in history was John D. Rockefeller. And when he was asked in an interview, How much is enough? he replied, Just a little bit more. That doesn't sound like contentment to me. Just a little bit more. Again, what a contrast we have in Paul. And you see something different in the Philippians. If, if you go over, look at 2 Corinthians 8 for a minute. This is not a well-known passage, but it is profound. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is talking about the example of the Macedonian churches, which would include the Philippians. And listen to their contentment, despite having poverty and negative circumstances. Listen to their generosity that flows out of their contentment in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, I want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Paul was gathering collection, financial collection, supplies for the believers in Jerusalem who were struggling. And these believers who are in severe trial and extreme poverty, nevertheless are overflowing with joy. And so what does joy plus severe circumstances equate for them? Please, Paul, let us share in generosity. Would you please give us the privilege of sharing with the saints? They were apparently very content with Christ. They didn't need other circumstances in place. They were full of joy in spite of trial. They're overflowing with generosity because of their joy in the Lord. May we be like that. May we be like that. Again, this is why Paul was overjoyed when the Philippians gave it out of their pockets because it was just a sign that Christ is at work in their life and that they trusted him and that they treasured him. But now we come to the source, the source of his contentment. In other words, Paul's confidence. Verse 13, the source of Paul's contentment, his tranquility. Here we see in verse 13, Paul's confidence again. When Paul says, I can do nothing without Christ. We get a sense of where his treasure and confidence lies. Look at verse 13 again. I have learned to be content in all things. And then he says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can do all things. Now, is that a blank check? You hear it after the Super Bowl or an NBA championship. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You might even write it on your your shoes, right? Athletes put it on their shoes. They come up to the camera. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Don't get me wrong. I appreciate the heart. You do. You've got to appreciate the heart and the boldness to proclaim Christ. Is that verse a blank check? I can walk on water through Christ who strengthens me. I can make it to the NBA. I'm still holding on to that when I'm 45, but I do think I may have the skills. I can name it and claim it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, there are some things, though, that God has not wired you for. He has not wired me for the NBA. He barely wired me for high school varsity basketball. There are some things that you're not wired for, that God has not prepared you for. This is not a blank check. It doesn't mean that we can achieve anything that we imagine or desire. In this context, the context of suffering, it means in every circumstance, tough, or easy, good or bad, it's Christ who strengthens me to be content. I can do all things. I can be content in all situations through Christ, who is my strength. That's the point. Despite being chained to a Roman guard, having suffered immensely, facing real possibility of execution, I can be content through Christ. I've put my confidence in, and who is my treasure? That's the context. I'm at peace through Christ who strengthens me. And you must not think that Paul is some superhero Christian with a superpower capacity to be content, unlike any of the rest of us. This is something, again, that he learned. And the only difference between Paul and many discontented Christians is the source of their confidence and the source of their contentment. For Paul, the source of his contentment was, in short, Christ. Christ. And I think of two words Two words come to my mind. Trust and treasure. Two T words. Trust and treasure. He was content because he had Christ. He trusted Christ. He trusted We're often discontented because we trust in the wrong things. Isn't that true? For example, we trust in ourselves. We trust in financial success. We trust in certain friends or family and they let us down. Or our physical attractiveness. Or our abilities and our gifts. Our future plans. We trust in these things. And then They come and they go. They let us down. These things make terrible gods. Who are we looking for for our salvation? Who are we looking to to sustain our life, to strengthen us, to give us peace, to be our everything? Trusting in Christ and his promises made all the difference for Paul. Our circumstances, they ebb and flow, but Christ's promises are a sure rock and ground to stand on. You can have joy in no matter what circumstance, if you know the promises of God and you're standing on them. So let's just for a second rehearse some of the promises that we have from God just in Philippians and see if it's a sturdy ground to stand on so you can be content no matter what's going on around you. Chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. A tremendous passage about our eternal security. What God starts, he finishes. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's ultimately God who's at work in my life and preserves me. Chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. There is a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I stand on the objective finished work of Christ, not on my own performance. And he gives me his perfect righteous record. I don't depend on my own. That's why I'm justified before God. Or how about this one in the face of persecution? Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. What a hope. What a resurrection hope. What a future we have. The best is yet to come. I think you could get through any circumstance if you let that one really sink in. The best is yet to come. Take the long view. Keep your eye on the horizon. Don't look at the storm. If you believed all that, you could be content in any negative earthly circumstance. Or how about Philippians 1.29? Go back for a second. It has been granted you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer. For him, If you believe that, you'd be content in suffering. In other words, God's not caught off guard by your suffering for him. God has a plan for your life, and it may involve suffering for him. Going against the flow of the culture. You shouldn't be surprised when you're maligned. God has a plan. Or how about this tremendous one? Philippians 4.19. My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. If you believe that, you'd be content in all circumstances. You know that Christ is your strength. and He'll give you everything you need to follow him. So if you think on those promises and they are yours in relation to Christ, you can be content. That's part of how you can be content. Because you stand on something outside this world. You stand on your Savior and his inheritance that he has for you, his promises, his work in your life. What does that look like in everyday life? Well, for example, the next time you face opposition and suffering, remember the words that Paul wrote, it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ to suffer for him. Okay, this is is not unusual. Suffering is not unusual for the steadfast Christian. Next time someone makes you feel discontented in this world with your worldly goods, remember, your citizenship is in heaven. Your inheritance up there is greater than what you have down here. And then that might free you up to not use your stuff as a God, but use your stuff for God. The next time you lapse into thinking that God's love depends on your performance or how you've done that week, remember you have a righteousness that comes from God as a gift on the basis of faith, not based on your performance. If you were to preach these truths to your heart, contentment will arise. Remember God's promises in Christ to strengthen us, and make it possible for us to be content in all circumstances. But that's the word trust. What about enclosing the word treasure? Christ must be your treasure if you're going to be content in this world full of plastic trinkets. What Paul treasured above all else, as we have seen this week, is clearly Christ and knowing Christ better. If you would ever be content in Christ, you must know Christ first of all. And then you must have Paul's aspiration. I want to know him. I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. I want to know in that suffering the power of his resurrection. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is for me to take hold of in the midst of trials. Christ was his treasure. And you saw that this week in his motto, chapter 1, verse 21. For me to live is Christ, to know Christ, to be empowered by Christ, to glorify Christ. My life is Christ, and to die is gain. Because if you take this life from me, you just give me my treasure, possession of Christ. And we said the only person that can say to die is gain is the person who is living for Christ now. Because if you're living for anything else, when you die, you lose what you've been living for down here. You look at Philippians chapter 3. I wish we could have spent more time there this week, but look at Philippians 3, the beginning of it. And you see how he deserted all his past, his past boasts. The things he once put in the credit column as merits before God, he now considers them street trash. He now puts those things that he once boasted in in the debit column, and now Christ is in the credit column. He considers Christ his gain. He says in chapter 3, verse 10, "...that I may know him and the fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection." All those things I now consider lost, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, that I might know Him. He knew what it was to have the greatest treasure that nothing on earth could strip away. Eventually, all our earthly treasures will be stripped away. They will eventually. But they can't take Christ from you. It's very basic, right? But I think we need to hear it again and again. Do you treasure Christ Is he your master passion? I mean, here's a guy who has a master passion. He's gospel first. I praise God for my chains. It's advancing the gospel. I praise God for my critics because at least they're preaching Christ. I praise God for my crisis because it's an opportunity for Christ to be magnified in my body, in my life or my death. My body is a theater for his glory. I mean, what's his treasure? (laughs) He doesn't care about crisis, critics, or chains. He just cares about knowing Christ more and advancing his glory by proclaiming good news about Jesus Christ to the nations. So the nations will be glad. That's all he cares about. Christ is his treasure. And if you finally let Christ be your treasure, the world will notice the difference in you. Why are you so at peace with such bad news? How is it you can be so full of joy? How are you so tranquil? How are you like a calm sea? How do you have this equilibrium? How are you so buoyant? Can I tell you about my Jesus? In closing, if you are trusting and treasuring Christ, if you're walking intimately with Him, abiding in Him, then He will be your strength. He will strengthen you for whatever you face. Have you ever heard the hymn, No One Ever Cared For Me Like Jesus? This hymn was written by a guy named Charles Weigel. could be wrong on that. We'll call him Charles. Charles was a traveling evangelist who traveled the country with his wife and his daughter. However, one day his wife shocked him. She informed him that she and the daughter had had enough of this traveling lifestyle. She would abandon him, board the train for California. She said, I'm ready for a life of bright lights and adventure. We're leaving and we're not coming back. Again, you can't imagine the pain of that unless you've been married and had children. Five years later, he was able to sit down finally and write this hymn. It took him 30 minutes to write it, but you can tell that this is a man, although touched by great sorrow, was treasuring Christ. He was content. You hear it when he wrote these words. I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus, since I found in him a friend so strong and true. I would tell you How he changed my life completely. He did something that no other friend could do. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take my sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. The reason they could write hymns like that is because they had a treasure like him. Could you write a song like that? Father, we're so thankful that we have every reason to be content. We have you. We have Christ. To live is Christ, and to die is to gain. You're preeminent, Lord Jesus. You're everything we could ever want. And so our prayer is that you would help us to love you more. Help us to be people who put their confidence in you, who abide in you, who treasure you. May that be true of this student body. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.